0: Hey there, everybody. This is Robin with Real Old Reels, and I just wanted to tell you before we get started that the audio for this episode is not going to be very great because Lisa is an area with very bad ice storms and she's been out of power for five days. But even with all that, we did the best to get you this episode. So please forgive us the bad audio, and we'll talk about A Raisin in the Sun. Welcome to another episode of Real Old Reels with Robin and Lisa. Today, we're celebrating the popular work by Lorraine Hansberry, A a Raisin in the Sun, the first play to run on Broadway written by a Black woman. Not only was it the first, but it was unexpectedly and immensely popular, sparking two film adaptations and getting replayed in classrooms all around the country because it was that profound.
1: Yeah, and the title of of the play comes from a well-known poem, actually, and I'll take a second to read it now, called Harlem by Lynx and Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode?
0: Lorraine Hansberry knew Langston Hughes growing up, and this was an inspiration for her play. Lorraine sadly died at a very young age from pancreatic cancer, but she had already become very active in the civil rights movement during her life. She worked with a lot of prominent Black writers and activists, and so by the time she began on her play, A Raisin in the Sun, she was primed and ready to write about the issues and experiences of poor Black people from her hometown, Chicago. But really, the true inspiration for this play was her own family and the Supreme Court trial that involved her father, Carl Hansberry.
1: Um, yeah, so just to summarize the, the Raisin in the Sun, it's about the younger family living in cramped quarters in an impoverished neighborhood in Chicago South Side. There's Walter, his wife Ruth, and son Travis, as well as Mama or Lena Younger, and Walter's sister, Benita. We meet them on Lena's first day of retirement. She's worked as a house servant for decades, but there's another reason the day is momentous. They're awaiting a check from Walter's father's life insurance, $10,000. It could mean the realization of everyone's hopes and dreams. Walter wants to break out of service and become a liquor store owner. Benita wants to go to school to be a doctor. Ruth and Travis don't say anything, but they need a better place to live. Oh, tired walls. And these marching cockroaches. <laughs> and this grand little closet, which ain't now, never was no kitchen. Then I say it loud and good. Goodbye, misery. never want to see your ugly face it's lena's money though and it's her decision so they wait with bated breath when the check does come lena makes the decision to put a down payment on a nice home in a white neighborhood walter is crushed feeling trapped in his career as a chauffeur lena sees his pain and decides to give him the remainder of the money instructing him to save half of half for Benita's schooling and the other half for him to take charge of the family. All seem at peace until the neighborhood association makes a call and encourages them to sell their home to them and live somewhere more appropriate for their background. This enrages them until Walter discovers that his business associates have run off with all his money, including Benita's school funds. It's up to Walter to decide which dream will be realized and which will be deferred
0: a big blank empty space full of nothing just hanging at the edge of my days waiting for me but it don't have to be Mama. sometimes when i'm downtown driving that man around we pass them cool quiet looking restaurants Mm. i look in i see these white boys they sit talking talking about deals deals worth millions of dollars mama and half the time
1: they don't look no older than me No, son how come you talk 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 so much about money because it's life so i think that most people vaguely understand the that the setting of raisin in the sun was during a lot of civil unrest but unless you're you've studied it some of the significance might be a little bit lost so what information do you think is important to know about the setting robin This story requires
0: a bit of context. In decades following the Civil War, about 90% of the Black population was living in the South, and things were still very racially heated and economically depressing and just plain dangerous. A lot of the Black population was, though technically emancipated, working the same fields as they did as slaves, only as indentured servants for very little pay, just scraping by. This would soon change with early the early 20th century, which brought a lot of industrialization to the northern states and western states. There was ripe opportunity from factories and plants willing to pay far better wages and travel expenses for workers. And what resulted is called the Great Migration.
1: Forty years ago, when you were a young woman, why did you leave the South? for the same reason that everybody else does. I thought maybe if I could come up here, I'd do better for myself. Of course, I don't say I exactly turned over the world since then. But but you didn't give nobody the right to stop you once you decided you had to go, even though you weren't
0: going no place at all you thought you were, didn't you, Mama, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Then why, in the name of God, couldn't you let me get on my train when my time comes? The once centralized Black population in the South was dispersed over large cities around the country. Chicago's Black population would rocket from 30,000 to over 230,000
1: in only a few decades. So to put that in perspective, that's like a smaller city like Washington. If you guys are familiar with that, that was kind of close to where Robin and I grew up. But... um a small city like that growing into the city of Tampa, Florida. And that's just the black population.
0: Yeah, it was huge. Racial tensions erupted into violence as white factory workers went back home from serving in military service during World War I to discover they had been replaced by black factory workers willing to work for a lot less. And Chicago would become a notable center of violence during the first 30 years of the century. Ferocious riots resulted in deaths of dozens and displacement of a thousand families. Before the violence started, there wasn't a notable concentration of black citizens to one relegated area in Chicago. No black people lived in a concentration of more than 90% black, and about a quarter of the population was living with mostly white neighbors. So it was way more dispersed. But by the end of the 30 year span, almost all black people lived in 90% black concentrated neighborhoods. So it was a huge turnaround.
1: We lost that baby. Oh, I thought we was gonna lose Big Walter too. Oh, that man grieved himself so. Honey, he was one man to love his children. Hey, nothing can tear at you like losing your baby. I think that's how come that man finally worked himself to death like he done. Like he was fighting his own war with this here world that took his baby from him. Crazy about his children.
0: There emerged two main corridors that were the black ghettos of Chicago. Though violent racism has subsided at this point, organizations such as the Chicago Real Estate Board and even the University of Chicago took to creating racially restrictive covenants, thereby legally cordoning off black tenants and owners. These covenants, in essence, stated that. Anyone who looked black or was even proven to be one-eighth of African descent with a blood test, should it be too tricky to tell, were barred from owning property in neighborhoods all over Chicago. Blacks could live in these white neighborhoods only if they were the staff of a white family. And this was considered legal if 95% or more of the owners in said neighborhoods signed this covenant. And this was a mass undertaking getting these covenants signed by these organizations, they would hire people to canvas neighborhoods and gather signatures with the notaries present. Often it wasn't the neighbors themselves that instigated it, especially on bordering neighborhoods, but the neighborhoods further away were trying to maintain a buffer zone. And such was the case for the Hansberry's.
1: The family of Lorraine Hansberry, the author of the play, right?
0: Yes. Um. Her, her dad, her mom and her two brothers and sister and herself. She was about eight years old at the time. Around the 1930s, the depression was in full swing and the black population was exploding and in desperate need of housing. The white population began to dwindle and leave the area and white houses were being left vacant. So um, housing in black neighborhoods was between 20 to 50% more costly than white neighborhoods and so economically it's no surprise that white landlords started t- started to allow black tenants into their buildings as they would pay
1: more than whites would. Oh, so at this is more the neighbors who had issues with black tenants not the landlords. It was the
0: neighbors and these associations that would kind of I I mean I think it was a mixture of the two but yes I think landlords were willing to make money from whomever, and they didn't have a problem with them in general. But yeah, and people who were trying to sell their homes, they didn't have any other white people to sell to often. So in the Hansberry's case, they were probably the only ones who wanted to buy the house at all. On at least a couple of occasions, upholding the covenant went to court. Most, some, you know, maybe it didn't, Other times because people just knew not to or they would just settle out of court or whatever. But most notably with the plaintiff, Olive Burke versus the white owner, Climate, who wanted to rent to a black tenant. Remember the name Olive Burke because she comes up later. Anyway, the Illinois courts upheld the covenants and any issues regarding blacks in these neighborhoods were resolved with res judicata, which means essentially the court decided that the covenants are legal and binding so that's it. Here's what happens happened with the Hansberrys. An owner in the Washington Park subdivision needed to sell his house. In fact, he'd already left it vacant by this time, but nobody was buying, nobody white at least, and he met Carl Hansberry, a well-respected landlord, a former US Marshal and a candidate hopeful for the US Congress. So, very well educated, financially secure, guy and he was also a real estate investor and ready to buy so this white landowner devised a way to sneak by the notice of the of those policing these covenants he got a third party to go between hansbury and himself to complete the sale of the property and i don't know the details of how that all worked out but somehow the sale was completed this white homeowner was the husband of olive burke the woman who had been instrumental in upholding the legality of the covenants earlier that I mentioned. And so (laughs) I wonder what their dinner conversations were like.
1: Yeah, these sound like a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: (laughs) not awkward at all. Anyway, the Hansberries successfully bought the property and moved in. And here's where the story is difficult to tell because there's the legal side of the story with one type of ending and the human impact of the story, which has another. Of course, the family was taken to court by another neighbor, Anna Lee. What's with these women, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Hansberry, accompanied by James Burke, who sold him the house, and proved that the covenants were not legal because the covenant had, in actuality, never been signed by a 95% majority, which was the hinge of the whole matter. You'd think that would be an obvious win for the Hansberries, that it would all work out nicely. But weirdly... The Illinois courts just kept saying, res judicata, res judicata, meaning legally what's done is done and we don't have to hear anything else about it. Of course, the covenants are clearly racist, but you couldn't win a court case based on that during that time anyway. Hansberry took his case to the Supreme Court after state courts were less than impressive. Hansberry was able to show, first, that the covenant was invalid from lack of signatures, and second, If it was a class action lawsuit, meaning a class action lawsuit means it represents a group of people, people under this covenant, right? But because he successfully owned the property, he was technically part of that class represented by the covenant. Therefore, it was like this catch-22 situation. If he wasn't part of the class that was suing him, there was no suit, right? Because he couldn't have, he couldn't be sued for it. But if he was part of a class, then he was not getting proper representation. <laughs> this is where my law knowledge starts breaking down a little bit. But basically, Res Judicata couldn't apply. And if you bring a class action against someone, it really shouldn't be yourself or your own class. So that, that won at the end of the day. It seems like a conflict of interest and a bit, bit sketchy. And Carl Hansberry slipped in at the last minute that it violated the 14th Amendment because... He wanted all such covenants done away with. And he won the case. Eventually, all covenants were struck down and neighborhoods were opened to black occupants. That's the happy ending to the story. And really, the briefest way to tell it as well. You know what you should do, Miss Lena? You should take yourself a trip somewhere. Oh,
1: to Europe or South America, someplace. Just pack up and leave. Gone away, enjoy yourself some. Forget about the family. Have yourself a ball for once in your life. Ruth, what would I look like wandering all over Europe by myself? Aw, shoot. These here rich white women do it all the time. They don't think nothing of packing up their suitcases and piling on one of them big steamships and swoosh, they're gone, child. Well, something always told me I wasn't no rich white woman.
0: However, while this is all happening, here's what Lorraine and her brothers and sister experienced. Once they moved into their house in Washington Park, crowds of angry people would howl and yell outside their home, and they couldn't walk from one end of the neighborhood to the other without being spat on or attacked or yelled at on the street.
1: Yikes, that would be so, so frightening. And honestly, my first thought when she wanted to buy a home in a white neighborhood, I mean, the housing could have been a lot better than the other options, but and it's a brave move to make like a civil rights statement but i don't know if i would have the guts to do it myself if i was in the same situation i wouldn't want to be in a neighborhood where my neighbors are out to get me that seems really scary
0: absolutely and it's uh, we'll talk about the toll that it took on their family I, I think that they now in retrospect the family from what i've seen on their um on their website it's they're very um proud of their legacy but yes it was extremely difficult Lorraine remembers her mother carrying a German Luger around with her, and there was a taxi service that would take them three blocks for 10 cents, and that was necessary to take a taxi just for a few blocks to keep them safe, and they even had a bodyguard. One night, Lorraine and her family were sitting in the living room having a regular evening when, without any warning, a brick came so fast into the room and right over Lorraine's head and lodged into the wall behind her. Her older sister remembered it came so fast through the glass window and then had to be pulled out of the wall. So it was thrown really hard. Their their bodyguard rushed out the front door and started waving his gun at the crowd and told them to disperse or he'd shoot. And they all left. But Lorraine, her sister and mother, moved to another building safer for them while her dad and brother stayed in the house in Washington Park. I mean, she could have easily died from that brick.
1: Yeah, and probably a lot of other situations as well she could have died from. Yes, yeah. Harl
0: Hansberry was a great believer in the American dream and making changes for Blacks with civil rights activism and legislative me- measures. And this court case was very important. But he eventually looked into moving to Mexico after the discouragement and obstacles and hatred his family faced, and he died from a cerebral hemorrhage very young. So it took a lot longer for change to happen, and it was super stressful. Understandably, Lorraine was heartbroken and became embittered and radicalized. And I don't say that as a criticism, but just as a statement of where her experiences and loss took her. It was easy for people to look at the success of the trial and think, oh, the whole thing was a win. But the reality is that it took years, time, money, energy, all their sense of security to fight this cause, and... The results took so long to take effect and didn't solve
1: everything. And it ultimately took their father's life. Yeah, I'm sure their court case and the play did did a lot to shed light on these issues and may have had a really positive impact on future housing issues, too. But it really stinks that it wasn't a happy ever after, happily ever after for the family, the actual family.
0: Yes, I think they suffered a lot of loss, but... Like I said, I think the, organiza- like the family continues this legacy, and, and they're very um, well-respected, and they do a lot for the civil rights. However, the Hansberry family doesn't bear any real resemblance to the one in a in the sun. Her family was well-educated and financially secure, but Lorraine chose to tell the story from the perspective of the tenants her family had. It's sad that she died so young.
1: Yeah, it is sad, but her play is really great legacy to leave behind. And I know a ton of high school students study it every year. But um, it's probably a good thing that she changed the the family a bit, too, just to make them a bit more relatable.
0: All right, thank everybody. And you just forgive me for ever wanting to be anything at all. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Your
1: mama you. Who the hell told you you had to be a doctor?
0: You're so interested in messing around with sick people, going out of here and be a nurse, like other women, or get married and shut up. In one video that uh, the Hansberry family put out, Lorraine's older sister talked about how they would go um, the ev- that they would go collect rent from their tenants, and there were times when. That it was just understood in her family that they would open the door and see the situation the family was in and say, oh, you don't need to pay rent this week. And so they, I think, were really closely connected with their tenants and kind of what
1: they struggled with. Yeah, that's nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, Lisa, we've covered a lot of different movies and a bunch of genres, but I don't think we'll ever get the kind of contrast we did going from. Elvis
1: last week to a raisin in the sun this week. It was quite a shift in weight. Yeah, it definitely was. And it's not a movie that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. It's important to watch movies like that, but it sure makes you feel sad. Yeah. Our next movie coming up is kind of another sad sad one, though it is a bit redemptive and and it's not you don't go away feeling too sad about it. Um, it has two of some of my favorite actors and ones that we've seen in our past episodes, though not together. And this next week coming up is going to be The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, starring John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart.
0: My favorite Western. I think I can say without without any hesitation. I think this is my
1: favorite one. Make sure you listen in next week to hear Robin rave about her favorite Western. Woo!